This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experience is part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Usually we meet Sunday evenings in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We hope to return to that soon. And as you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll come with us when we can gather in person. Children and um, even cause damage to people 
um, who are more vulnerable, whether it be you know, the conquistadors um, attacking the indigenous peoples of, of the Americas and um, using the doctrine of original sin to kind of justify that, or slavery, or the treatment of women. There's been a, a great deal of harm done. A lot of Christians today are eaten up with false guilt. Uh, false guilt. And so, in spite of all those negatives, I, I would submit to you that it's very important that we continue to believe in original sin, um, because Paul's intention in this passage is exactly the opposite of those things I was just saying. Um, he was in, in no way intending to create any kind of hierarchies or to, to create a lot of guilt um, or to put a lot of pressure on us or to chide us. Um, instead, this was an invitation to us um, to, to actually rest, knowing that there's this thing over us that's so much more powerful than us. We can never fight on our own. And it's also an invitation to us um, that uh, we're all in the same boat together. In fact, the message translation says in verse 19, it's clear enough, isn't it, that we are all centered, every one of us, in the same sinking boat with everyone else. And so, um, you know, this is not meant to, um, to create an us versus them mentality at all. And, uh, and it's also not meant to... Uh, create a sense of pressure, where you've got to do all these things, you've got to fight this thing, it's, it's more like, you know, it's, it's such a relief that I cannot solve this problem on my own, and I need help from the outside. So I want to look at these two things, the invitation to equality, and then also the invitation to rest. First of all, look at verse 9. Should we conclude that Jews are better off than others? And the answer is an emphatic, not at all. And that is a very powerful statement of universal equality. Because in Paul's day, uh, the Jews thought of themselves as very much uh, in a very different ethical and moral category and spiritual category as the rest of the pagan Gentile world. And Paul is here writing to Jewish Christians, and he's saying, you know, uh, just because we Jews have been about this for the last 2,000 years and they don't really know anything about Yahweh, it doesn't matter ultimately. It, ultimately, he's saying all of us Jews... And all of those Gentiles, we are all in the same predicament. Um, no one is better than anyone else. And to the insecure Gentile Christians, he's saying, uh, verse 9, you know, all people, whether Jew or Gentile, and I would add Christian or Muslim or atheist or agnostic, you know, whether it's the left or the right, Trump or Biden, all of us together are under the power of sin. And to me, that's a greater statement of equality than even something like uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Men that came up after the French Revolution, or even our own uh, brilliant uh, Declaration of Independence where the, the founders said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And I would say that it's not even as much self-evident that all people are created equal as it is that all alike have sinned. Um, to me, that's more obvious if you look at the two. That uh, you know, It doesn't always seem like everyone's created equal, but it to me, it's very clear that all of us are under this dominion and this power that we cannot contain and cannot control, that makes us do things that we hate. Um, a great example of the equality uh, created by uh, the doctrine of original sin is Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've never been to one of the meetings, but I know a lot of people who have. And uh, I know that the stereotype is that you have a, a group of people in these um, these fold-out aluminum chairs down in a church basement. They're all smoking. And you have uh, you have doctors, you have homeless people, and you've got 
rich and poor, and you have African-American, Latino, Caucasian, uh, you have people who are more conservative and others more progressive, and they all come together and they say, um, we have admitted that we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. And that is a, if you just insert sin in that statement, uh, it's pretty much the doctrine of original sin. We have admitted that we are powerless over sin and our lives are unmanageable. Um, that's, that's the equality uh, that is created by this doctrine. Um, there was once a guy who was living with us in our house and um, we took him in because of hardship and um, I became more and more irritated with him. And uh, Stephen Langford is not you. <laughs> and this guy just seemed to, uh, to be thankless and entitled. And um, he would like, you know, whatever. He would shrug his shoulders. You know, there was no, there was no obvious gratitude. And I was talking to Margie and I would say, you know, I, I would give him a break, but he just seemed so obtuse and intentional about being indifferent. And, uh, and she said, you know, have you thought about um, the living conditions that he is under and um, the things that are going on around him in his life? And it really just uh, caused me um, to realize how ridiculous I was being. That, uh, you know, actually he might have had a lot of gratitude in his heart and he just couldn't express that uh, because uh, he was so afraid, which actually turned out to be true, um, as he later expressed. And so, when you understand original sin, it really allows you a lot of sympathy for people. Um, when you know that we're all fighting this thing together, um, it makes you very sympathetic. The, um, the Methodist revival in England, John Wesley, uh, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley, a lot of it grew out of this bold preaching uh, against sin. Um, and uh, they preached this to both the laborers, the freeholders, the merchants, the gentry, the nobility, and even the monarchy. So they were, uh, you know, no holds barred. All, all groups of people in the strict British uh, 18th century hierarchy, they were all fair game. And of course, the, uh, the Methodists were kicked out of the churches of England because they were saying these things, and they had to preach out in the fields. And uh, one member of the royalty, the Duchess of Buckingham, said this, about Wesley uh, and the Methodists in general. She said, their doctrines are most repulsive and strongly tinctured with impertinence and disrespect toward their superiors in perpetually endeavoring to level all ranks and do away with all distinctions. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as wicked as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. I think the translation of that would just be that she was offended. She was offended by the preaching of Wesley and Whitfield because, because they were saying that all alike are together uh, under sin. And this sent shockwaves throughout the world, even to America. And um, in, uh, in Delaware, a group of Methodists helped, uh, helped slaves to escape um, off plantations into freedom. And one of these uh, was a man named Richard Allen. And uh, he, was an escaped, uh, he was an escaped slave that was taught scripture, he loved the scripture, uh, he loved preaching, he loved evangelism, and uh, he was one of the first African Americans to be ordained uh, in the U.S. In, 18, in 1786 at St. George Church in Philadelphia, uh, he was ordained as a pastor in the Methodist Church. And his preaching was so powerful 
And his evangelism was so winsome that he attracted more and more black congregants to St. George's. And when it came time to, communi to take communion together, um, you know, as all of the, um, and the black and white all came down together, um, the, at that point, even the Methodists got uncomfortable. And they said, can we do this like in stages, where first the white people come down, and then African Americans come down. And, George, and, and Richard Allen said no. He said, no, the, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is completely level. And there can be no hierarchies because of the nature of original sin. And so they, um, he, he was not allowed to continue to be a, a pastor. And he, he left to create the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And you might wonder what all this has to do with, um, with you right now in this time of isolation and... Um, you know, why or why, how does this help me um, in, in my sense of, of equality? And I would just say that a lot of us right now in these times where we're alone with our thoughts so much uh, can tend to think that we're kind of, we're an outlier um, or that we are somewhat crazy, that we're alone and maybe, um, you know, the fantasies that we have um, or the, the thoughts we have. Um, the way that we treat our kids or our desires uh, just to be left alone, uh, to lock yourself in a bathroom. Um, you know, people tell me just um, that they feel like monsters sometimes because they think that they're the only ones who take pleasure in the misfortune of their friends or something like this. You know, we have these thoughts. Am I the only one who does these things? Am I the only one who struggles with these things? And, um, and Paul would say no. Um, you know, especially the sins of the, of the tongue, those things that just come out of you, the things you say that are so hurtful to people, and you can't believe you said them. It's interesting how in this list Paul mentions several, um, in verse 13, that have to do with speech. That that's a, that's a major way that we're affected by original sin. The, our mouths that are, used to, that are created to praise God and to, to give thanks and encouragement are often the very thing that end up being polluted. And... Um, you know, the, the lies that I think are strongest are when, when we're told that we can't handle relationships or we can't handle being a parent or a friend or, um, or a spouse or that we're terrible children or our parents. And this is where Paul would just say, no, self-destruction and misery follow everyone, verse 16. That this is, everyone's lives uh, are filled with these things. And, and, you know, you might say, I don't even really care about God. I think that's the really the hardest of all. It's just, am I alone in my um, in my struggle to, to have any desire for God? In fact, one of the questions was just how how do you help someone when they're so cold and they don't want to pray and they don't want to read the Bible and um, they just feel again they feel like they're the only ones. And, and God says in verse eleven, essentially, you know, I'm used to this. Trust me, I, I, I'm okay with this. I um, no one seeks me. Verse eleven. You know, Abraham, Noah, Adam, the person that you think is on fire for God, uh, God's like, you know, verse 18, but no one has any respect or fear or reverence for me. I'm used to that. I, I, I know that's the way y'all are. And so uh, there's a real invitation here uh, just to equality and that uh, there's no race, there's no gender, there's no nation, there's no social class that are better than any other. Um, we're all in this together. Verse 12, all have become useless. 
uh, or in, you know, incapable of doing things that we want to do, good things. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that original sin is, a, is an invitation to, to rest and to not strive so hard. Um, you don't have to work so hard to prove yourself because of this doctrine. And I know that a lot of us have in our heads like a, a brother or a, maybe our dad or our mom or some friend that we had growing up, and that person's voice is always in our head, and we're always trying to prove them wrong, where we say, I'll, I'll show them, you know, I'll, I'll do this, I'll make a name for myself, and, you know, I'll do um, X, Y, and Z thing to impress them. I think so much of our striving is just to impress someone like that. And God says in verse 20, no one can ever be made right with me. Uh, by doing, you know, X number of things, you know, a thousand great things. You cannot make yourself right with me. And don't read that as a condemnation or a put down, or again, you know, the, the rebuke. Uh, the, he's not chiding us there. What he's saying, he, it's, like a, it's like when a parent is trying to calm down their child who's so frantic to try to please them. Like we came home once and uh, one of our children had broken something, and they were trying so hard um, to do things to please us because they thought we were going to, they were going to be in such trouble. And this is like God saying, you know, calm down, it's okay. Um, you don't have to be so anxious. Uh, you, you can't, you can never do enough stuff to make yourself right with me. One thing I think about uh, sometimes is just what would I have in my obituary? Uh, what would I want written down that would say, like, okay, that was a good life? You know, what would you have in your obituary where, where it would say something like, you know, the published... 20 best-selling books, or happily married with, you know, 12 uh, wonderful grandkids, or they were a beacon of hope in their community, you know, what would you want in your obituary that would say, that would justify my existence, that would make my life good? And there's really nothing that ever comes to mind that would satisfy you. And it just makes you realize how much striving uh, is just chasing after the wind and useless. There's a, there's a movie called Free Solo or you see this, like, on steroids. It's a very powerful example of a man uh, who just is striving so hard to prove himself. And I think in this case, it's probably to his mom, if you, uh, if you watch the whole movie. Anyway, this guy's name is Alex Honnold, and I've never seen someone depicted with more of an addiction to achieve something. He can never rest. He climbs all of the hardest um, cliffs in the whole world. Um, free solo, which means he's got... Um, no ropes, there's no protection, and he's climbing at these incredible speeds up these impossible rocks, but he's not satisfied until he conquers the hardest of all, which is El Capitan in the Yosemite Valley. He's got to climb, he's got a free solo El Capitan, or he is not going to be okay with his life. He just has to keep going. And you see how, in one way it's impressive, but in another way it destroys his relationships. Uh, he... He cannot commit to his, uh, his girlfriend who he loves so much, and she loves him so much. And you can just see in the movie her longing for him to commit to her, but he can't do it because he's got to do something to prove himself. And you see in one scene in the movie how you know, his parents didn't show him any physical affection at all, never hugged him at all. And uh, his mom was always talking about how he had to be perfect, he had to be perfect and do it perfectly. And you can just see this child in there who was trying uh, so hard to please someone, to prove himself. And God says, you don't have to do that. Um, that's, that's, that's useless. That's not going to bring you peace. Look at verse 17. They don't know where to find peace. This does not 
trying to justify your life at the most fundamental level prohibits peace. There was a day this week where uh, Margie and I just couldn't get anything done. She was trying to pick a paint color out. Um, we were trying to order the right piece of furniture. I was trying to get writing done the sermon. Um, and we just couldn't get to anything. And I think I've had a lot of days like that. You probably all have in the coronavirus where you just can't get anything done. And both of us really struggle with um, being productive. It's very important to my well-being to be productive in a day. And, uh, and so if I am not productive in a day, if I don't get enough done, then I just feel awful about myself. And both, usually one of us can help the other one. We were both unproductive. So we finally just had to say, you know, is this really what makes a day important? Is what matters today that I did something to prove myself, justify my existence? And, you know, God says, you don't have to do that stuff. You can let that go. Um, you're, uh, you're incapable of doing anything more to, to please me. And again, this is what it means to be under sin. It's, 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 um, it's saying you're, God's saying you're under the domination of a foreign power. And it's not even you, really. It's, it's, it's sin causing you to do these things. It's not the real you. You've been enslaved. The real you is not, is not there. It's this false self being driven to do all these things. and So the good news is that Jesus comes and he breaks the power of that domination. Um, you know, the, the refrain from this passage is no one, no one, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one is wise, no one seeks God, no one understands him, uh, no one does good, not even one, just no one, no one, no one. And Paul is hammering the point that no, nothing from our side Nothing from the human side, from the ground up, is ever going to do it. Um, we're, he's just saying, stop trying to do that. Let it go. And, uh, and, he, and he says that no one can do these things. But then, of course, we know um, from later in Paul that there is one. And there, there, there was one who, who was righteous. And there was one who was wise. And there was one who sought God. And there was one who understood and he came, he came down to rescue us. It's like uh, the, the Latin deus ex machina, which means like God coming down from a machine. In the old Greek tragedies, they would have these cranes, and the God would come down to the last scene and rescue everyone. And that's what Jesus is. He is the one who comes from above, and he scoops us in our sin, scoops us out, and raises us through his resurrection into heaven. And... Um, and that is what we celebrate at this table that we cannot celebrate tonight. And I, I want to, every Sunday that we're not taking communion to just remind us that we want to be. And that all the words I say cannot, um, cannot do what this meal does, which is to give us um, this palpable, tangible sense of the rescue of Christ. And so once again, we, we wait another Sunday uh, to be together and to receive the Lord's Supper together. So let me pray for us as we... Move to our last song. Lord Jesus, help us to rest in you and not strive and not need to be productive and not need to get a lot done and not need to prove ourselves or justify our existence. And help us to know, Lord, uh, that we are in the same boat with everyone around us. We're all in this together. We're all fighting this common enemy, both the coronavirus and... We pray this in Jesus.